0: Hey, McDermott Road Church, I'm glad to see you, glad to be with you in your summer series. Uh, We at Waterview uh, bring you greetings. We're thankful for you. We're proud to be in such close association with you. And uh, at this time, even though we can't be together in person, uh, we are blessed that we can have this modern technology to visit with one another, to worship with each other, and study the Bible with each other virtually. And I'm thankful for the opportunity and the invitation to be a part of your summer series. I know the weather has been oppressively hot. Um, I would call it miserable. And so maybe your mind has been drifting off to other places somewhere else in the world. Today, I want to take you to another place in the world, a time long ago, a place far away. I want to take you back to the year A.D. 60, the first century into a place that we know by the name of Rome. Paul had finally made his way to Rome. This is at the end of what we know to be the book of Acts. He had finally made his way to Rome around A.D. 60, and he will be imprisoned there for a couple of years. matter of fact, the last couple of verses of the book of Acts tell us that he's going to be imprisoned there. And this is a time when... We, we know that he is what has been called under house arrest. And so he had, a, he had some freedom. He was confined, but he had some freedom. He could receive guests, he could minister, and he could do other things. And, and so one of the things that he's able to do there at this time is he's able to write epistles. Now, at the end of the book of Acts, a couple of things become crystal clear, I think, in the mind of Paul as he thinks about his ministry moving forward. One of the things that happens at the end of the book of Acts is Paul makes one final appeal to his fellow Jews there in Rome to consider Jesus, to accept Jesus as their Messiah. But you can see in Acts chapter 28, verses 26 and 27, that they refuse to do that. And he says to them, well, this is what the prophet Isaiah actually said about this. He's saying, you're actually fulfilling this, this prophecy And so the first thing that becomes crystal clear in his mind is that for the most part, his beloved fellow Jews are just not going to be the ones who are going to most readily receive Jesus as Messiah and as Savior. But the other thing that became crystal clear to him is that even though that was taking place, something else was beginning to take place, and that is the Gentiles were willing to accept Jesus. They were willing to listen and learn about Jesus. This was not necessarily a new development. It had already been taking place during Paul's other missionary journeys. But I think this just becomes crystallized in his mind that that now in the future, my ministry is going to be with the Gentiles. Now, in that time that he had in in those two years uh, there in Rome under house arrest, I mentioned that he could receive friends and that he had the privilege to do other things. And and so one of the things he does during this time is he starts writing some epistles. And it's during this time of confinement under house arrest that he writes what we commonly call the prison epistles. And the prison epistles are usually considered to be the books of, of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. And so Paul has the opportunity to write during this time, and he writes these epistles. Now, I mentioned Ephesians and I mentioned Colossians, and, and I want to kind of just for a moment talk about those two books because often of these four prison epistles, the, these four the, these two books, Ephesians, Colossians, they're often compared and contrasted. And one of the things that somebody might say about the book of Ephesians is it tells us about the church of Christ. And it does. It's a beautiful, beautiful epistle about the beautiful church of Christ. But how that might contrast, though, with the book of Colossians is Colossians is an epistle that tells us about the Christ of the church. And so you've got these two beautiful concepts that are connected, not necessarily contrasting, but they're connected, and they r- reveal to us this wonderful, beautiful church. In Ephesians, you have the church of Christ that is highlighted, but in Colossians, you have the, the Christ of the church that is highlighted. And what it reminds me, it reminds me that both of these are so important. Both of these are beautiful, wonderful concepts that are, are so in need uh, not only then but for us to understand today. And so as we think about this this time and this place far far away from our modern culture I would like to remind you that if it was true then it's true today. If it was meaningful and impactful then it ought to be meaningful and impactful today and and, and so while we're removed by so much time and so much distance from these days when Paul wrote to the Ephesians and when he wrote to the Colossians, we find some wonderful, beautiful, impactful, life-changing truths in these epistles. Now I've compared and contrasted just a little bit Ephesians and Colossians, the church of Christ to the Christ of the church. What I want to do now is invite you to go with me to the book of Colossians. That's where we want to spend the rest of our time. I mentioned to you that if Ephesians can be described as having a theme, the church of Christ, and if Colossians can be described as having a theme of the Christ of the church, here we are reminded that you need both of these things. Amazingly, in the history of Christendom, churches and people have tried to do both of these very things. They have tried, for instance, to have Christ... Without the church. And the book of Ephesians says, no, you need the church with Christ. Ephesians is about the church of Christ. But also, people in the history of Christendom, amazingly, have have tried to have church without Christ. They have tried to be a part of a a movement or a group, or or maybe even on a smaller scale, a local congregation. And amazingly, there is a temptation, apparently, because it happened in Colossae. There is a temptation to want to trade Christ for something else, for some other idea, for some other philosophy, for some other um, experiment. And so amazingly, people in the history of Christendom have been tempted to have church without Christ. And I'm convinced that that is basically the background. That's the issue that Paul is wanting to write when he writes this epistle to the brethren at Colossae. When Paul was entertaining guests during those two years of imprisonment in Rome, one thing that happened is a man by the name of Epaphras came to visit him. He came to see him, and he gave Paul some information about the church back at Colossae. And in doing so, it allowed Paul to have this idea that I need to write an epistle to this church. But also in that conversation he no doubt had with Epaphras, he, he learns about some of the issues, some of the struggles, some of the temptations that some of the people there at Colossae in the church were struggling with. And, and so he, he writes to them and addresses some of these things. Two of the things, no doubt, that Epaphras reported to Paul that the church was struggling with, they are going to be addressed in this epistle. Primarily they're going to be addressed in chapters 2 and 3. Those two things might be, number one, there was a strong temptation for these these Gentile Christians to return back to their pagan roots. They had been involved in their lives were lives of paganism, you might say, and they had come out of that. And and so in chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, you can you can really see how Paul is, is warning them. You, you don't want to go back to those things. And if you have gone back to those things, you've got to put off those things. That must have been a concern of Epaphras, as he reported about the church at Colossae to Paul. The other thing, no doubt, that he talked to Paul about was how there were influential Jews in the area. Some of them could have been part of the church. Some of them might have just lived in this tri-city area, the the three cities of Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. And because there were Jews in the area, some of them apparently were bending the ear, we might say, of some of the Christians there. And they were trying to convince these Christians that in, in some way or another, they should embrace elements of Judaism into Christianity. Maybe not full-fledged going back into Judaism, but in some way or another uh, mixing it in. And so there would have been the temptation then, and no doubt Epapyrus talked to Paul about this, and this is why Paul writes this book. There would have been the temptation for these people to maybe mix in elements of their pagan past and or to mix in elements of judaism into their christianity. And really what's at stake here is in being influenced and tempted to do that. I think what Paul saw was a church that was in danger of trading Christ for these things. And so instead of, you know, tearing into them and saying, you know, you're going back into paganism and you're 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 mixing in elements of Judaism into Your faith and to your Christianity. I think what Paul does instead, and it's a wonderful model for ministers today, instead of just tearing into them and explaining how wrong they are, what he does instead in Colossians chapter 1 is he reminds them of what they have, the beautiful benefits they have. He's got something more beautiful to talk to them about before he gets to those other things. He gets to those other things in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of of Colossians, no no doubt. But he, first of all, he wants to start with the positive. He wants to explain the beautiful. And so that's what he does in Colossians chapter 1. If you're looking at Colossians chapter 1, I think Paul... Number one, he, he knew that there was hope for this church. Even though there were problems, even though there was potential heresy in the church at Colossians, he still calls them in chapter 1 and verse 2, faithful brothers. I, th- I think that's interesting. So he doesn't write off people who maybe have some different ideas or, or struggling with some things. And, and that's a good thing for us to remember, not, not to write people off. He still calls them uh, his, his faithful brothers in Christ at this point, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 2. He even calls them saints in that verse. But not only does he call them that, he he then begins to tell them about all the things they have going for them. They've got some wonderful things going for them. Number one, they have a minister, a papyrus, who loved them and was teaching them the truth. And I think there are three beautiful words that describe the ministry of Epaphras. He's identified in verse 7 as the one who had taught them that the three things he was sharing with them and allowing them to experience are are three essential elements of Christianity. Faith, love, and hope. If your ministry is producing those kinds of results, you're doing something right. And Epaphras was one who loved them, and so they had... That going for them. They had a minister who loved them going for them. Secondly, they had an apostle who loved them. They had an admirer from afar. Paul's in Rome. According to chapter 2, he's never even been there. He didn't convert these people, or at least that's the common belief. He doesn't really know them personally. He knows them through acquaintances. He knows them through Epaphras. And yet, here he is in Rome, and he still loves this church. They had an apostle who loved them and who wrote this epistle to them. And it's just a reminder to us that even though we might be in a local setting and we might think that this is all that matters right here, there are others away from us who are looking at us. And hopefully they're admiring us. Hopefully they're learning from us. And that was the case with the brethren at Colossae. They had Paul admiring them from afar so they had a preacher who loved them. They had an apostle who admired them. But this is the crux of the matter. They had a Christ. They had a Messiah. They had a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that was all to them. That's really what the most beautiful paragraph in the book of Colossians, especially in chapter 1, is all about. He launches into this 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 long, beautiful paragraph about how Jesus is preeminent, how Jesus is supreme. What he's really wanting to say to them is, you've got this going for you. You've got a preacher who's preaching the truth. You've got an apostle who loves you and is writing to you. But most importantly, you've got Jesus. You've got Jesus. And and in, in Colossians 1 in verse 27, he says, he says this, he says that, that Jesus is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is saying to them, you, You've got the most important thing that you need. You have Jesus. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. What he's really saying to them is, Why in the world would you ever try to have church without Christ? Why in the world would you ever think about trading some of the other philosophies, some of the other religious ideas? Maybe some of the pagan elements of your past. Why in the world would you ever want to trade Jesus for those things? You've got the Christ of the church. And and so I think that's why Paul sets out to write what he does in Colossians chapter 1. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in verse number 13. And what we're going to see is how Paul is saying to them, you've got everything you need with Jesus. Let me remind you of what you have with Jesus. He's he's all you need. He is everything you need. He should be everything to you. What Paul does here beginning, I'm going to start in verse 13. A lot of people would start this in verse 15. But I think what Paul really does here is he, he he, he creates a list of reasons why Christ is everything. And so this is not really my outline. It's it's the Apostle Paul's, and it, this is a great way to preach. Just to see a list in Scripture and say, let's let's just follow this list. Let's see what the inspired writer said about this. And so he begins in verse 13, is where we're going to start, telling them about Jesus, telling him about Christ, who should be their everything. And so let's look at the text and let's just follow these things here in the next few minutes. Here's the first thing. Number one, he tells them that Christ is everything they need because he's king. Verse 13, he's talking about what God has done for them. And he says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Here the domain of darkness is contrasted with the kingdom of of God's beloved Son. Darkness and light is contrasted. We live in a world where when we look around it seems like Satan, the kingdom of darkness is often winning. But we know something because we've read the end of this book. We know something and it's something that Satan knows as well. We know what he knows. We know that his powers are subject to God. That His kingdom is subject to the kingdom of God's dear Son. And in the end, we win and He loses. He knows that. And, and so I think Paul wants to remind us that what's at stake here is you need to choose sides and you need to choose sides widely, wisely. And what, what you need to understand is that, that, that you choose Jesus because He is the King. He's the kingdom He's the king of the kingdom of light. He's the kingdom of the king of God's... He's the king of the kingdom of God's dear son. And so you choose wisely. He, through his father God, he he is willing to deliver us. He's willing to save us. He is willing to rescue us from Satan's kingdom. And he's willing to... Move us or to transfer us into the kingdom of Jesus so that we can have Jesus as our King. Christ is everything because He is King. Number two, Christ is everything we need because He solves our biggest problem. Verse number 14 says, In whom? In Jesus, in other words. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There there are a lot of problems in our world today. But there is the biggest problem of all, and that is sin. One of the fixes that the world is seeking for might not be the one fix that God is seeking for. The world looks at the problems and, and... They may have an outline of these are the things we need to do. One, two, three, maybe eight, nine, or ten. The world has an idea about how to fix the problems of the world, but God has the best idea. He has the most important idea, and that is our problems are solved through Jesus. It's in Him, it's through Him that we have all of these blessings. In the book of Ephesians, Chapter 1 and verse 3, all blessings are in Christ Jesus. And verse 7 says that it's in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. It almost sounds exactly what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. I will remind you that the way you experience this is you get into Jesus. If it's in Him that we have these blessings, you need to be in Him. And the way that happens according to the Bible, Romans 6, 3, we are baptized into Him. Over in chapter 2, one of the beautiful verses about baptism in the whole Bible, it's right here in this epistle that we're studying, Colossians 2 and verse 12 says, "...having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead." A third reason that Jesus should be everything to us, that he was everything to them. Christ is everything we need because he shows us God. Verse 15. Verse 15 says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15 is really the beginning of a beautiful paragraph that is describing how blessed Christians are to be in Christ or to have Christ as their Lord. This is the place where a lot of people might start this lesson. And and here is the beginning of this this paragraph that I referred to earlier. One of the greatest blessings with Christ is He shows us what God looks like. He shows us the image of the invisible God. One of the great questions that people have in our world today is, is, what's God like? Who is this God you say you believe in? And what Paul says to these brethren who knew him is don't don't trade Christ because he tells you, he explains to you, he actually shows you who God really is. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Number four, Christ is everything we need because... He's of first importance. The latter part of verse 15 says also that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now that expression, firstborn of creation, it's really been misunderstood. It's actually been misapplied. And in a lot of ways, it's been thought to mean something almost opposite to what it really does mean. Firstborn can mean the first one born. I mean, that makes sense, right? Right. And that leads some to believe that, that Jesus uh, was actually a created being. And, and some religious bodies teach that Jesus was a created being. But the, the term firstborn, as it's used here in Colossians 1.15, is actually a metaphor to describe rank or importance. It's the same way that that expression is used, for instance, in Exodus chapter 4 to describe the nation of Israel. They weren't the first nation, but they were firstborn in God's eyes because of where they ranked. It's the same expression to describe David, who was the, the youngest of eight brothers, according to uh, Psalm 89. He was still firstborn, he ranked first in importance. And since Jesus in the next couple of verses here in Colossians 1 is described as the creator of all things, obviously that means He couldn't be created. If He created all things, He couldn't be created. Paul's reminding them and he's reminding us that Christ is the one that God appointed to be of first importance. He is preeminent. He is supreme. Number five, if we just go down this list that the Apostle Paul gives us, Christ is everything we need because He also is creator. I already talked about that here um, for a couple of minutes. But verse 16, you can really see how this is explained. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him. And what's this last part? For Him. Paul's really only confirming what Many other verses teach us. I'll just highlight one, John 1 and verse 3. All things were made through Him, through Jesus, in other words, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is everything because He is our Creator. You might ask, why is that important? Well, it's important because if Christ created us, then He knows what we need. And He knows what we need the most is Him. He knows that there is this God-sized hole in everybody's heart And the only way you're going to ever really feel that is with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only that, this is important because this verse says that creation points to and honors Christ. All creation was created for Him. And we are a part of that creation. We are the prized part of that creation. And we exist for one reason. And that is we exist to honor and to worship and serve our Lord. Sixth thing that Paul mentions. Christ is everything we need because He takes care of us. Verse number 17 says, He is before all things. That maybe is the purpose statement of of this whole study. He is before all things. But he also says, And in Him all things hold together. In Christ all things are kept in their present state. Their existence... Order and arrangement all stay the way they are currently because of His power. If Christ all of a sudden said, I'm going to clock out and I'm not going to do my job anymore, this world would fall into confusion and chaos. The Colossians really needed to hear this because they were being drawn away into various philosophies and speculations involving the worship of angels and spirits and demons. And what they really needed to remember is that it was Jesus uh, who had created all and was over all. And those things that they were beginning to focus on did not explain anything that's real important. They would be of lesser important things. Even if there were some truth, they could... They could find in those things. They were beginning to contemplate trading Jesus for all of those things. And why would anybody do that when it's Jesus and Jesus alone who takes care of us, who controls this world and and keeps it the way it is, and especially our relationship with Him to the Father. Then number seven, following Paul's outline here, he says Christ is everything because... He is our head, beginning in verse 18. Verse 18 begins to to remind us of how Christ is over the most important part of creation, the new creation. There there are two parts of this. Some people like to outline this, this entire discussion as Christ is over the creation, but then He is also over the new creation. And verse 18 might be the beginning of that new creation, He's not just the beginning of the world. He is the beginning of the new creation and all the blessings that are attached to it. So here is the clearest reminder of all that a church without Christ is not God's plan. You can't have church without Christ. Remember the theme of Colossians is he's the Christ of the church. Jesus is the Christ of the church. You can't have Christ without the church. And so Christ is the head of the church, Paul says. A church without Christ just becomes a club. It becomes a a group. It becomes an an institution. And really, if if a group doesn't have Christ, if they're calling themselves a church, then that church is no different than any other group of people on earth. They just become a a, a fellowship, an identity, a, a, a group. But they're not having Christ as their, their head and as their meaning. And so this is important. Jesus is, is our head, so we depend on him for everything, just like you depend on your head for in everything. We don't act physically. We don't act without the impulse of our head. And just as our body will never function without the head, the church can never function without the headship of Jesus Christ. That's why he's everything to us as the church. Then number eight, Christ is everything we need because He arose from the dead. The latter part of verse 18 says that He is the firstborn of the dead. Now, verse 15 says He's the firstborn of creation. And so this expression is used very similarly uh, to verse 15. He's the firstborn from the dead. Again, it doesn't mean in order, but it means rank. It it means importance. Jesus was, in fact, not the first person to rise from the dead. had other examples of that in New Testament Scripture we could cite. But He is the first to rise, never to die again. And He is also declared to be the first fruits of the resurrection, as we study from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why is this important? If this didn't happen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing else matters. Again, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15, you can see that that is the conclusion that Paul makes. Everything else doesn't matter if this didn't happen. That's why Jesus is everything to us. Number nine, Christ is everything to us because He's God in the flesh. Verse number 19 is an interesting verse. It says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God was pleased. He was happy. He was delighted to dwell in Jesus and I'm not sure if I completely understand how dynamic and, and how wonderful and beautiful this really is, but it is something else to consider. One, one of the heresies, one of the issues in those days, people believed that, that that God would not in any way be able to embody flesh because they believed that flesh was inherently evil. And this would later develop into Gnosticism, which you might have heard of. It it was a scandal, really, for Jewish people or people from the the Greco-Roman world to think about how God could be in a person. But this is exactly what this is telling us. It's telling us that God was in Jesus. And the implications for us, I think they're very inspiring. It suggests, and a friend of mine suggested these three things. It suggests that God, number one, is not deistic. He doesn't remain distant and inter- disinterested. He He's with us. He's a part of our lives. Number two, it means he loves material creation so much that he wants to indwell flesh. And then that's the, the third thing that's inspiring to us is that if God can do that, if God did that in Jesus, he can do that in us. And so he can put His indwelling in us and we can have His Spirit in our bodies right now. Number 10. The 10th thing that he says about Jesus being everything is that Jesus is everything because He is the only path to peace in our world. Verse 20. And through Him to reconcile Him to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. When sin entered into our world, it had more than just a spiritual impact. I know when we study Genesis chapter 3, that's the easiest thing to take away from that. that well, there was this severing of a relationship between God and man but when sin entered into the world as we see there in Genesis chapter 3 it had it had other had other impacts you might say it had a theological impact it had a a personal impact it had sociological impact it had ecological impact but it also impacted us physically and it impacted us socially and how sin impacted us socially is that it caused people not to get along anymore. And in the New Testament, this is best understood and seen and illustrated, I guess, with the, the difficulty of Jews and Gentiles getting along. And so Paul closes this beautiful paragraph about why Jesus matters, why He is everything, by reminding us if, if we are seeking peace In our world, for people around us, it can only happen in one way, and that is through the reconciliation that we have in God through Jesus. Not only does it bring us back in line with God, it brings us back in line with other people. And so Jesus is the answer to how people that are on opposite sides of a discussion can actually find some unity. So that's why we need to point people to Jesus. He is the only path to peace in our world. And so just to conclude, Paul's just lists a beautiful outline here of reasons why Christ is everything to us. Why in the world would we want to be a part of a group, a church, and not have Jesus as he's described right here in this passage? We want to keep Christ in the church. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Lord of the church. He's the Christ of the church. He rules over all creation, and He rules over the new creation. Remember, as Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things. And if He's not before all things in your life, please go and read and study and pray over this beautiful passage and make Jesus everything in your life. It's been good to be with you.